Hello everyone and welcome back to Historically Haunted. I am your host Ariel and thank you all so much for being here today. This episode is another listener suggestion and this one is about Trinity Church in New York City and it was suggested by Timothy. Before I get started, I wanted to tell you all that I finally have a new official website. I have been trying to make this for years and thanks to my Patreon's help, I was able to save up to create a pretty professional looking website. I think it looks good anyway. If you would like to go check it out, please go to www.historicallyhauntedpodcast.com. My goal for this website is to have everything in one place. You can learn a bit more about me, my show, and how to get in contact with me if you wanted to. You can also listen to my latest episodes, find links to podcast apps that do have my show, and soon I will have a place dedicated to dyslexia and I will have helpful tips and tricks along with some helpful links on that as well. I am also working on opening up a shop so that you guys can get some official historically haunted merchandise. This is my first time doing anything like this, so I'm really nervous about it, but I'm also excited. I will be starting off small with things like stickers and coffee mugs, but I will eventually expand into shirts, hoodies, and other apparel. I'm just testing the waters here to see if anyone is even interested before I branch out into new things. So please go check out my website and take a look around and let me know what you think. And I will keep you guys updated about this website on my Facebook and Instagram page. And I have a link to those down below as well. This was all made possible by my Patreons. Thank you guys so much for your help and support. Without you, I would never have been able to make this big move forward with my podcast. So thank you guys again. Up next, I will be getting a new microphone to add even better sound quality to the show. Speaking of Patreons, I have some new ones to thank. And they are Casey, Elena, Sky, Jeff, and Tracy. Thank you all so much. And for everyone who just recently signed up, your thank you cards are on the way, so please keep an eye out in the mail. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon, you can check out the link to my page down below in the show notes, and you can also find it on my website. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time, photos of historical places that I talk about on my episodes, and you will be getting a thank you card along with a logo sticker in the mail after your your first payment. I have a link down below in the show notes to all of those pages. And I have one more thing to say before we get started. If you enjoy travel vlog style videos, I will be posting a major video dump very soon on my other YouTube channel titled Travel Spin. I'm going to Universal Studios Orlando for my first time ever. And I am a huge Harry Potter book fan. So I'm very, very excited for this trip. This is a belated 30th birthday trip. Um, I was saving up to do this last year, but instead I moved across the country. And then when I had planned this trip that's coming up, I had no idea that all of my medical stuff was going to happen all around the same time. So when I got inundated with medical procedures and doctor appointments and my work schedule being crazy and trying to keep up with this podcast, I kind of was just like so overwhelmed that I really was struggling just in life. Like I was struggling to get to work on time. I was struggling to get this podcast out. So I feel like I just need a vacation and the most calming therapeutic thing for me is vlogging and editing videos. I know that some people would think that's not relaxing, but to me, that's the most relaxing thing I can do. So I'm going to Universal Orlando for my first time ever, and I will be vlogging the experience. And then I will also be hitting up the parks at Walt Disney World, which I've been to many times, and I'm very excited to go back. So if you like travel vlog style videos and room reviews and all that kind of thing, go ahead and check out my other YouTube channel. I have a link to it down below. 
yes, I know this is a shameless plug, but I wasn't just doing it to get views. I just wanted people to know that I will be gone very soon for a while and I'll be kind of MIA, but you can catch up with me as not being the spooky haunted girl and being more of a theme park, liking to look at theme park history and getting into the whole like rides and everything, ride breakdowns and room reviews and things like that, because that is the other side of me that you guys probably don't get to see very often because I'm always talking about historically haunted places, which I also love. So it kind of combines my two things. If you were to split my heart in half, one part of me is a theme park roadside attraction junkie. And then the other part of me is this historical places and haunted experiences. So if you want the whole package of who I am, you can follow me on the other YouTube channel and get to know the other side of me that also likes fairy tale castles and wands and all that kind of thing. All right, that's it for the housekeeping. Let's get on with today's episode after, of course, our monsters moment. And I could not talk about the city of Manhattan without talking about the most famous urban legend in New York. I'm talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No, just kidding. Even though I believe that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was partly based off of this legend, I'm talking about Gators in the Sewers. city is massive, stretching over 302.6 miles, including the island of Manhattan. It can be easy to get lost in the streets of the city that never sleeps. Most people living in and visiting the city spend so much time looking up at the vast amounts of famous skyscrapers that they don't usually give much thought to what lies underneath. Under the city streets lays a huge network of the city's sewer system. This network full of winding sewer pipes and drains stretches over 7,400 miles. It is in this massive network there are said to be alligators. But this is just a myth, right? An urban legend that is completely fabricated. Well, not exactly. I was surprised to find out that this legend has way more truth to it than I ever could have imagined. The reports of alligators living in the sewers stretches back to the early 1900s. In 1907, the New York Times published an article about a worker in the New Jersey town of Kearney. Charles Gids worked for the Kearney Street Department and he and his co-worker were cleaning the street drains when Charles and his friend spotted something strange in the water. Charles bent down to pick it up, and then the object began to move. Stunned, Charles realized that what he was holding was a baby alligator. Right as Charles realized that what he had picked up was a gator, it snapped its jaws and bit his right hand. Now, I know what you might be thinking. That is so strange for someone in New York City of all places to want to own a baby alligator as a pet. But sadly, the exotic pet trade was extremely popular and still relatively legal in the early 1900s. By the time the 1930s rolled around, it was commonplace for newspapers to have advertisements of live baby alligators that could be sent by mail, delivered right to your front door, for the low, low price of $1.50. What I'm about to read you is word for word from a 1930s newspaper advertisement. How would you like a real live baby alligator for your very own? A rage for baby alligator pets has swept the country. We have arranged at great expense 
expense to supply you with the genuine live baby alligator just hatched in the deep marshlands of the South at an amazingly low price. These croaking little pets will be shipped to you by mail, carefully packaged, safe arrival guaranteed. Think of the fun, the thrills you will have with one of these baby alligators. Read how fascinating they are, how interesting, study nature. Remember, the alligator comes down to us from prehistoric days, from the age of the dinosaurs. Do you want a baby alligator? You bet you do. What boy wouldn't? I have no idea who wrote that advertisement, but it was really hard to read because it was worded so weirdly. Today, this news advertisement would sound ridiculous, insane, and you might think of animal cruelty, because I sure did, but in the 1930s, people were doing all kinds of weird stuff. And I also love the way that only boys can want a baby alligator when they are so popular, apparently. News advertisements like this worked, and it became popular for people to get their very own baby alligator all over the country. People who visited Florida were also known for bringing baby gators back as souvenirs. The main problem with all of this is that baby alligators don't stay small. Notice how none of these advertisements said anything about them growing to be the size of a car? American alligators' natural habitat is in the swampy areas, marshlands, and freshwater lakes of the United States. Their habitats stretch from North Carolina down to the Rio Grande in Texas. On average, an American alligator adult male can grow to be 11.2 feet long, and a female can grow 8.2 feet long. And they can also weigh up to and sometimes over 1,000 pounds, and some get even larger than that. The biggest alligator on record was 13 feet and 3 inches long. They grow pretty fast too. It only takes about 18 months for them to grow 4 to 7 feet long. So the cuteness does not last too long because they get big fast and then they become quite dangerous. Many people who got them as pets when they were babies did not even know that they would grow so large and turn out to be quite vicious. A gator's jaws are strong enough to crack a turtle's shell and their teeth are super sharp. They need large amounts of fresh meat every day, fresh water, and they have a lifespan that can stretch 50 years in the wild. With no warning in any of these advertisements and before Google, it won't shock you to hear that once the gators got too big, people dumped them in the street or sadly flush them down the toilet after they realized that these gators were going to keep growing. This left hundreds of abandoned gators for people in cities to suddenly have to deal with. And I think that is so sad because it's easy to look at reptiles and think they don't care, they don't have a soul, but I mean, they're still animals at the end of the day. You can't just bring them out of their natural habitat and be so cruel to them. I don't know. I know gators are scary and they're, they will kill you, but also the gators didn't ask for this. You know what I mean? So I feel so bad for all these poor animals that are on this exotic pet trade market. And this happens a lot and it still happens today illegally, which really makes me mad. It just irks me that people used to do this like so freely, especially with shipping the poor thing in the mail. It just, it's so sad. On February 9th, 1935, another alligator article hit the New York Times. This one was headlined, Alligator Found in Uptown Sewer. Some young boys were shoveling snow into a manhole when they noticed something moving down below. The boys lassoed this creature with a clothesline and then pulled out an eight-foot-long, 125-pound alligator. This gator lunged at them, causing the boys to beat it to death with shovels, which also just horrible. What the heck? But anyway... 
The authorities thought that the gator had fallen out of a passing steamer ship in the East River and that it had swum up into the sewer system. In 1937, another gator was pulled from the East River. A week later, people were waiting to board a Brooklyn subway and they were shocked to see an alligator crawling out of a trash can. By now, people of New York City began to wonder if there were in fact alligators living and breeding inside of the sewer system. The city tried to squash these rumors and claims, assuring the public that these findings were nothing more than one-offs of discarded pets and some even they claimed were hoaxes. Perhaps the most famous story is when a sewer city official named Teddy May was approached by his frantic crew. They told him that they had spotted an albino alligator while cleaning out one of the sewer pipes. The men reportedly followed it around a bend to discover a whole family of gators. Teddy did not believe them at first, but after the men refused to go back down to finish the job, he told them that he was going down there and he was going to prove to them that there was nothing at all to be afraid of. It did not take Teddy long for him to come running back up the ladder and telling the men to go home and get their rifles. They went back down as a hunting party and they claim that they killed a lot of gators. Now how many that was has never been reported but the news article does talk about this as actually happening so that is interesting. People think that the number has been fabricated over the years but who knows. After this Teddy was kind of seen as a town hero and in his obituary in 1960, they credited him as the man that led a squad in cleaning the sewers of a number of live alligators. By the 1950s, this was still a popular trend, even making its way onto the TV show Leave It to Beaver. In this episode, Wally buys a baby alligator from an ad that he found in the back of his comic book. People buying live gators did not stop until the late 1960s, but by then it had reached pop culture, making its way into books and TV shows. There was even a very 80s horror movie that was also says it's a comedy. It was titled Alligator and it had a gigantic mutant alligator that was attacking people. But nothing would become as popular as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic that quickly turned into a video game and a TV show. In the 80s TV show, the turtles live under New York City in an abandoned subway system and they also use the sewers to get around. They were transformed by toxic waste and in a 1987 comic book they met a new antagonist and sometimes ally called Leatherhead. He was an alligator that was flushed down the toilet as a pet and became a giant mutant thanks to you guessed it toxic waste. So now the question is is there a group of gators that are living in the sewer system today? New York City authorities say no but old articles tell us that that was not always the case and at one time there might have been. People still to this day claim to have run-ins with gators under the city. The History Channel show Monster Quest went looking for these creatures, but they came up empty-handed. However, they are talking about over 7,000 miles of pipes, 135,000 catch basins, and 95 wastewater pumping stations. There is no way that you can get eyes on every single section of that at one time. The argument for the skeptics is that alligators cannot possibly survive underground, but there are some alligator experts who say that alligators are extremely tough and adaptable, and they can survive without sunlight, and they can fight off diseases. While people say that this is just an urban legend, urban legends usually come from one grain of truth, and this one has a lot of grains because there's actual like witness testimony and newspaper articles 
proving that, yeah, there have been gators found in the sewers. February of this year, 2023, there was a gator found at the Brooklyn's Passport Park Lake. And the poor guy was found being really lethargic and they took it to the zoo in Brooklyn and they found out that he had swallowed a bathtub stopper. I have no idea if they ever found out who the owners were, but you guys, listen to me. Alligators are not pets. Leave them alone. Let them be where they belong, please. And stop messing with any animal that is wild. Some people do think that this gator could have come from the sewers because apparently there's a network of pipes not too far away from this park. That was just in the article I was reading. I don't know if that's true. I've never been to this park before, but it is something to think about. Could there be alligators lurking beneath your feet in New York City? Maybe, maybe not. But one thing's for sure, this monstrous moment is more than just an urban legend. If you think of New York City without ever being there, it can be really hard to understand just how large it is. The city of New York is approximately 302.6 square miles divided up into sections that are known as boroughs. They are Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. Manhattan is located on an island and it is 13.4 miles or 21.6 kilometers long and 2.3 miles or 3.7 kilometers at its widest point. While all of the boroughs make up New York City, Manhattan is the most famous, sometimes begrudgingly to its neighbors. It is considered the cultural, media, financial, and entertainment capital of the world. The New Year's Eve ball drops in Times Square to a live crowd of thousands of people and more watching on TV. People travel from all over the world to be in Times Square just to say that they've been there. Famous skyscrapers are located around the island, such as the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, and the now one World Trade Center. There's tons of stuff you can do in New York. You can catch a Broadway play, you can go shopping at the famous Macy's and Disney Store and Fifth Avenue, eat at famous restaurants, take tours, go to museums, visit the famous skyscrapers. The list is endless. You do have to try the pizza though. The pizza in New York is really good, especially if you find the right location. I've only been there once in eighth grade, but I remember the pizza from that trip. All of these businesses, restaurants, and fun things to do is all located on a densely populated island. Transportation to and from the island is made via subway that goes under the Hudson or over it with various bridges, and they also have a ferry service. Trinity Church Wall Street has been a part of New York City's history for more than 300 years. This historic church is located at the southern end of Manhattan Island, known as Lower Manhattan, where Wall Street and Broadway intersect. Today, Trinity Church with St. Paul's Chapel is an active Episcopal church.
the Dutch were the first Europeans to settle in what is today New York City. Harry Hudson led the first expedition into the area for the Dutch East India Trading Company in 1609. The Lenape indigenous people were living in the Hudson River Valley, which included Manhattan Island. They are the ones who named the island Manhattan, which means hilly island. The Dutch named the area New Netherlands and set up a fur trading outpost. This was the first colony for the Dutch in the New World. In the beginning, the Dutch shared the land with the indigenous people and traded with them. More families settled on the island in 1623 and the village was named New Amsterdam. The Dutch purchased the island from the Lunape in 1626 for 60 guilders worth of trinkets. Today, 60 guilders would be equal to about 1,150 US dollars. Not long after they made this purchase, the English started poking their nose into everybody's business. The English came and said that they had a right to the land, not the Dutch. The Dutch and the English fought three wars between 1652 and 1674 over control of the New World. When the wars began, the Dutch in New Amsterdam were afraid of being attacked by indigenous peoples, pirates, and the British, so they built a wall to help defend their village. The wall was constructed of wooden planks and dirt that stretched over 2,300 feet, and it was nine feet tall. There were gates at each end and cannons were placed along the wall. One gate was at what is today the corner of Wall Street and Pearl Street, and the other was at the corner of today's Wall Street and Broadway. If you have seen National Treasure and your memory is starting to come in where he says here at the wall, that he found on the back of the Declaration of Independence map in that movie. This is what that's referring to. That's why they went to Trinity Church in that movie because of the wall that used to be here before the Revolutionary War. In 1664, three or four English warships carrying between 300 and 450 soldiers sailed into the harbor. King Charles II wanted to take over New Netherlands and its profitable fur trade. The Dutch governor soon realized that there was no way the colony could defeat such a large army and navy. So in September of 1664, he surrendered New Amsterdam to the English and swore his loyalty to the crown. New Amsterdam's name was changed to New York City and continued to be the main settlement on Manhattan Island. Manhattan Island and the surrounding land became the New York colony. King William III granted Trinity Church's charter and land grant in 1697 and the rent was set for one peppercorn per year. The church's land increased to 215 acres when the governor and his wife gave land to Trinity Church. The first church was built in 1698 and St. Paul's Chapel was built in 1766. Trinity Church burned down in the Great Fire of New York in 1776 during the Revolutionary War. American and British armies fought for control of the New York colonies in 1776 because whoever controlled the Hudson River would have a big advantage. On August 22, 1776, the Battle of Long Island began. The British were well armed with more than 32,000 British foot soldiers and had several ships in the harbor, including 10 ships of the line. These ships were armed with over 100 cannons on three decks, manned by over 1,200 soldiers. The British Navy was the most powerful in the world at this time, and it was pretty bold for a bunch of colonies to want to revolt against the British Army. On August 27th, the Continental Army was defeated by the British and the army had to retreat to Manhattan.
Manhattan Island and took a stand against the British in New York City. The British followed and after heavy fighting, they were able to take control of the city on September 15th when General George Washington's troops were forced to retreat out of the main part of the city. However, they continued to fight on other parts of Manhattan Island. During this period, Trinity Church was divided in its support. Some of the clergy were loyalists, especially those who were born and then trained in England. Members of the clergy who were from North America were patriots. On September 21st, a fire started in the city, burning through the night, and destroyed more than 1,000 houses. Large buildings burned, including Trinity Church, but not St. Paul's Chapel. Fighting between the British and the Continental Army continued until Washington ordered his troops to retreat off the island on October 16, 1776. The British occupied New York City until the end of the Revolutionary War. Eventually, the Continental Army was able to take control of a good portion of the Hudson River and the Hudson River Valley which helped them win the war. The war ended when the Treaty of Paris was signed on September 3, 1783, and the British Army left New York City on November 25, 1783. Trinity Church was not rebuilt until after the Revolutionary War. George Washington's first inauguration as president was on April 30, 1789, at Federal Hall in New York City. After he took the oath and gave a speech, Washington and members of Congress went to St. Paul's Chapel for a mid-afternoon service led by the Episcopal Bishop of New York. Then he went to the presidential mansion at 1 Cherry Street and ate dinner by himself, which I find what an interesting way to celebrate. You're just going to go have dinner by yourself? I do know that he didn't really want to be president, though, and literally everyone wanted him to be the first president, so he kind of had to take it, but I still think that's a really weird way to celebrate. The second Trinity Church building was rebuilt on the same land as the first church. The construction ceremony was held March 25, 1790, marking its official opening. The ceremony was attended by President Washington, and a special pew was set aside for him. Previously, in 1784, the church's charter was rewritten to omit the clause that the church must remain loyal to England. Unfortunately, this building only lasted 49 years when its roof collapsed from heavy snow during the winter of 1838 to 1839. Sadly, the building was too damaged to be repaired and had to be torn down. The third church opened in 1846 and it's the one that is still standing today. At this time, the church with its 281 foot tall spire was the tallest building in the United States until 1869 when St. Michael's Church in Chicago was completed that year. Trinity Church was the tallest building in New York until the World Building was finished in 1890. Trinity Church Cemetery and Mausoleum is on the National Registry of Historic Places. There are three separate burial grounds here. Some of the most famous people buried in the oldest cemetery named Trinity Churchyard include Alexander Hamilton, along with his wife Eliza. Their son Philip is listed on the registry, but it's unknown where his grave is. Some think that he was buried in an unmarked grave because he was killed in a duel, but so was uh, Alexander Hamilton. But of course, Alexander Hamilton does have the forefather status, so who knows. John Adams and James Monroe are also buried here. Members of the 
wealthy Astor family are buried in the second section, and this includes John Jacob Astor IV, who died aboard the Titanic. As the country grew, New York City's financial district exploded, becoming the center of business, especially banking and the New York Stock Exchange. Several significant and historical events have happened not far from Trinity Church. New York City became the trading capital of the country after the Erie Canal was finished in 1825. The canal connected the Hudson River to Lake Erie. This improved the ability for products to be shipped between the east and west. The Brooklyn Bridge opened in 1883 and Manhattan Central Park opened in 1858. Ellis Island opened in 1892 as the main port for entry for immigrants coming to the United States. It is estimated that about 12 million immigrants passed through Ellis Island by the time it closed in 1954. About 40% of all Americans living today are descended from someone who immigrated to the United States through Ellis Island, and I am part of that 40%. My great-grandparents on my mother's side immigrated from Italy in the early 1900s. Because of this, New York City is considered one of the most diverse cities in the United States. Once Manhattan was established as one of the most important cities to the United States, it also became a massive target. The city has seen its fair share of terror attacks and major incidences. One of these targets was the New York Stock Exchange. The New York Stock Exchange building is located in the heart of the financial district at 11 Wall Street, and it opened in 1903. On September 16, 1920, a wagon loaded with 100 pounds of dynamite and shrapnel exploded in front of the main office building for J.P. Morgan and Company. The J.P. Morgan building stood in the middle of Wall Street and the financial district. J.P. Morgan had become a worldwide bank following the World War I. The explosion damaged the front of the Morgan building and killed 38 people while injuring hundreds more. The streets were covered in broken glass and debris from the buildings. Wall Street opened the very next day to show that the bombing could not shut down the city's business. Unfortunately, in the efforts to clean up the streets, possible evidence was lost and those responsible were never caught, although a group of Italian anarchists were suspected. <laughs> During the Roaring Twenties, people were deliriously optimistic, especially in the cities. In their minds, nothing could go wrong, the drinks were flowing and the flapper girls were dancing, and it was easy to make money. You simply had to invest a little of your own money in the New York Stock Exchange to make a fortune. Many young people were being added to the new money list every month, and the thought of anything bad looming on the horizon was not even in their minds. But they were missing some key warnings signs. Unemployment was rising, automobile sales were plummeting, and out west crops were starting to fail. Farming communities were in bad shape, but the delirious optimism meant that no one was prepared for what was coming.
Buying stocks was the hottest trend. Men were camping out in front of the New York Stock Exchange in hopes to be the first in the doors. Some even camped out inside Trinity Church's graveyard. Buying stocks was seen as a fun thing to do until it all came crashing down. Literally. On October 29, 1929, the stock market crashed, leading to a worldwide financial crisis. Panicked men packed into the stock market floor, desperately trying to get out of their deals, but it was too late. Screaming and yelling, many fought with each other to try to get to the front of the room to try to save what was left of their life savings. Outside, as word spread, people wanted to take their money out of their banks. This caused a run. People running to the banks to take all of their money out caused a massive panic throughout all the major cities and even small towns. The problem with trying to take all of your money out all at once is the banks don't actually have enough physical cash to pay every single person what they are owed. So so as panic-stricken people ran into the bank demanding large amounts of the bank's money, the bank also panicked and shut their doors after their vaults were cleaned out. Millions of people lost their entire life savings and retirement in one day. The Great Depression lasted over 10 years, causing thousands to be homeless and leaving many families destitute. October 29, 1929 became known as Black Tuesday, and sadly, many men who lost it all committed suicide. Many jumped from windows of high-rises, and some died by the barrel of a gun. The New York Stock Exchange and Great Depression that followed was a devastating time in our history. President Roosevelt and his cabinet created the New Deal. This created a work relief program that provided thousands of new jobs building infrastructure throughout the United States. World War II began in 1939 and the U.S. began shipping weapons to its allies and this helped rebolster the U.S. economy. During the crash in World War II, Trinity Church kept its doors open and continued to hold services. On July 9, 1976, Queen Elizabeth II visited the church while touring New York City. She was presented with 279 peppercorns because the church had actually never paid its rent of one peppercorn per year. St. Paul's Chapel is located directly across the street from where the original World Trade Center once stood. Amazingly, the chapel was not damaged during the attacks of September 11, 2001. No glass was even broken in any of the windows. After the horrible attacks, the building was inspected and determined to be safe. Hundreds of people came to Lower Manhattan in search of survivors. Gradually, the first responders and other workers came to the chapel to rest and clean up. Volunteers from other churches came to Trinity Church to help comfort the workers and serve them hot meals. Spiritual support was also provided. All sorts of supplies were being brought to the church by New York residents wanting to do something to help. In the first three months, about 3,000 rescue workers came to the church for comfort. The wrought iron fence that surrounds St. Paul's Chapel became a memorial to those who were lost in the attacks and to encourage those in the rescue effort. People placed banners, posters, t-shirts, flags, drawings, and cards. These items came from people all over the world. And the items were moved to the chapel and taped to its pews and columns so that the workers could read them while they rested. For nine months, the chapel was closed to the general public and only open to rescue workers and cleanup crews so that they could continue. The last private service for the workers was held at noon on June 2nd, 2002. 
St. Paul's Chapel became a place for healing and hope during one of the saddest moments in United States history. Today, the church holds Sunday services and continues to be an important part of the Manhattan community. Now that we know the history of Trinity Church, let's take a look at some very spooky ghost stories. harder time than normal to find some ghost stories about the church, but I did find some good ones. I wanted to thank Timothy for helping me out with some of these stories because I did not find these online, but he sent me some stories from a book titled Haunted Manhattan. So some of these stories came from that book and thank you again, Timothy, for your help. There are a few ghost sightings inside the church's graveyard. One particular apparition would be especially frightening to behold. In the 17th century, an actor named George Frederick Cook was not doing financially well. He had a gambling problem, and he loved to spend the money that he made on his performances immediately by playing cards or betting on strange outcomes. Eventually, he lost all of his money, and he decided to sell his own head for scientific research so that when he died, he would have enough money to pay for his own burial. Ever since his death, his headless ghost has been seen wandering around the dark churchyard late at night. The figure has been known to walk toward an alleyway near the graveyard. Back in the 17th century, there used to be a theater there, and George performed inside it. It seems that even in death, he is still trying to go on stage, even without his own head. If you walk by the grave of Adam Allen, you might hear someone laughing. Allen was a comedian who died in 1768, but it sounds like he is still laughing at his own jokes in the afterlife. Another ghost to keep an eye out for is Robert Fulton. Robert lived in the late 1700s and passed away in 1815. He is credited as being the inventor of the world's first commercially successful steamboat, along with many other inventions. The steamboats proved to be his biggest success, and they were quickly turned into warships and used as a popular mode of transportation for cargo and people known as the ferry service. His inventions changed river traffic all over the country, and it made New York City an important port. After Robert's death, he was buried in Trinity Church, and he still seems to be really passionate about his legacy. His ghost has been seen walking around the graveyard holding a small model of his steamship, the Claremont. He began appearing when the ferry service stopped running after World War II, as if to show that he was upset that no one was taking his original invention seriously. However, as the ferry service has increased in popularity again, his ghost has been seen less and less. Alexander Hamilton has been seen walking around his graveyard dressed in a Revolutionary War uniform. And the ghost of famous pirate Captain Kidd has also been seen walking among the tombstones. 
Captain Kidd was technically a privateer, which meant that he had permission to do what he was doing from the government, but it was still pirate tactics. While in New York, he loved visiting Trinity Church, and he even provided a winch to help raise the stones for the church's steeple. Kidd was scapegoated by the English government and hung in London in 1701 after not being allowed to defend himself. His greatest wish was to be buried at Trinity Church, but he was denied. This is why many think that his ghost wanders the churchyard and gravestones, forever longing to be buried among the existing tombstones. Okay, so this next part is from a completely different church. Um, I got mixed up when I was writing this because there are so many churches called Trinity Church all over the country, and I found an article titled Most Holy Trinity, and I thought that this was a school that was attached to the original Trinity Church, but it's not. This is a different church that's actually located in Brooklyn, and I have never been to this place before, so I got completely confused when I was doing the research, and um, I thought that this was the school that was located next to Trinity Church, but that school is no longer there. So, sorry everybody, but I decided to leave it in because the ghost stories are really cool, and I was really struggling to find any more ghost stories for Trinity Church. So, this one is actually located 22 minutes away, and it's in Brooklyn, and it's a Catholic church. So I guess that should have been my first flag that this was different, but I'm not really religious, so it didn't even cross my mind that it was St. Mary's until just now when I was doing the editing. So my bad. Um, so just we're moving over to Brooklyn for this because I did all of this research on the ghosts and I just wanted to add it as a nice little end cap to this episode. So this church was built in 1841. And according to the article that I found, that I have the link down below, the school was built in 1887 on top of an old graveyard. And while it was reported that all the graves were removed before the building began, it's believed that they did not move all the bodies. And we've talked about this many, many times uh, that usually when they say all the bodies were removed, that's normally not the case. Who knows if they did this to save money or that there were just missing tombstones over time. It's unknown, but the spirits do not seem to appreciate that the building has been built on top of them. So inside the school, lights are said to flicker on and off for no reason. Strange disembodied footsteps have been heard walking down empty hallways and the sound of voices coming from empty rooms is heard often. According to legend, the church was built with secret passageways and tunnels that connect to multiple buildings down the street. Some of these entrances are said to be hidden behind fake closet walls. As the property takes up a large city block, the idea of them having secret passageways is not too far-fetched. Many old properties with multiple buildings used to have these tunnels for easy access during major snowstorms. Plus, they come in handy if you need to make a quick getaway during an attack if another war ever broke out. Some of these tunnel entrances have been bricked over by now because there are said to be some old bricked up doorways in one of the sub-basements. It is also believed that runaway slaves from the South use these tunnels as hiding places during the Underground Railroad as many northern churches became safe havens to help many people on their journey to Canada. Tunnels like these were also popular to use during Prohibition. Today, they are said to give off a spooky vibe. The church's second pastor was named Monsieur Michael May. He had the rectory building built in 1872, and his room was located on the second floor after its completion. He passed away in his sleep in 1895, and ever since, his ghost has been seen wandering the halls. His old room is also a place that many don't like to stay in long. 
It is used as a guest room, but many are quick to leave the room because they claim that they hear strange noises along with the sound of someone pacing around the room while they are trying to sleep. During late hours of the night, people often hear loud footsteps stomping up and down the stairs, and it feels as though they are being watched when people go to investigate. Animals have been known to act strangely around the staircase, and dogs often stare transfixed at the landing, and cold spots are common throughout the building. If you were ever near the bell tower, keep an eye and ear out for the ghost of George Stells. Stells was a parish sexton during the late 1800s, and a sexton is someone appointed to the church custodial staff who is charged with keeping the parish buildings ready for meetings and services. A sexton is also in charge with caring for church equipment and other minor duties like ringing the church bell. In the month of August 1897, Stells was murdered in inside of the entrance to the bell tower. While the motive is unknown, the authorities did have a prime suspect, but they had little proof. The man who was thought to have killed Stells was a parisher of Trinity, and he was later convicted of murdering another man and was executed for it. It is said that the bloody handprint of Stells is still visible on the staircase leading up to the bell tower. His ghost might be upset that his murder has never been solved because people claim to see him still wandering in the building that he was killed in. Many believe that his spirit will not rest until his case is officially solved by authorities. Stells also likes to ring the bell when it is not scheduled to be rung. Inside the main church, there are some urban legends of people mysteriously dying during prayer. Now their spirits are said to wander among the pews and many have seen shadow figures darting around the empty chapel. And that is what I could find about the hauntings at Trinity Church and the one I did on accident, Most Holy Trinity. <laughs> Sorry about that hard pivot there at the end. I, I figured since I already had the ghost stories written up that you guys would still like to hear them. Now, circling back around to Trinity Church in uh, Manhattan, the original church I meant to talk about, um, I had a really hard time finding stories from the church a lot of articles said it was haunted, but that was it. They just said, it's haunted, and they left it at that, and there was no elaboration, really. Um, but I still thought the stories inside the graveyard were really cool. The history of the church is fascinating, especially what happened around it. I really enjoyed this, and I hope that you guys did, too. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Historically Haunted. Please go down below in my show notes and check out the links to all my social media pages and my new website. Now that I finally have all the medical stuff out of the way, and after I get back from my vacation, I'm going to have more time to focus on the podcast. Our next episode is going to be a lot bigger because it's going to be the history and hauntings found inside the White House. It's time, guys. I've been wanting to do something in Washington, D.C. for a while, and I've been waiting around to see if someone would suggest it. And I haven't gotten a full, like, you should do the White House suggestion yet. And I have always wanted to dive into the history of the house because it is so cool. It's changed so much over the presidents that have come and gone. And first ladies have changed the decor multiple times. So it's going to be a blast. And when I get back, my next Patreon episode is going to be about the strangeness of Oregon. I still have not finished that all the way yet. It turned into a lot longer episode than I originally thought. So I ended up doing a quick history of Easter, which was really fun because I try to cover all the holidays over 
on my Patreon channel and I realized I haven't done one on Easter yet. So everybody on my Patreon page enjoyed a quick history of Easter and then Oregon will be coming as soon as I get back from my trip and start that one back up. So again, thank you all so much for listening to today's listener suggestion episode. I hope that you guys have a fantastic week and I'll see you guys back here really soon on Historically Haunted. Bye everybody.